0: Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of
1: the transitioning economy. Oh, hello, I'm James Scotland. Welcome to episode 18 of What on Earth, a podcast of all things minerals, new energy and associated supply chains with a particular interest in the impacts and efforts on your business as the Australian and global economy transitions to the post-carbon world. Every day, we hear of new developments, of industry changes, of new industries, of new technologies, and it's often hard to understand what it all means for us as business people. So let's see if we can find some clarity in all this chaos and seemingly confusion, provide some insights and clarity, and try and ask the question, what on earth is going on? To help me do do this, uh, my co-host is Tenet Reid, the Director of Climate Change and Energy, at the AI Group and one of Australia's top 100 influencers in climate change. Hello, Tenet. How are you? Hello. Good. Good to be back. It's always good to hear your voice. <laughs> now, normally, Tenet, I would introduce our other co-host, Paul Hodgson, the Principal Advisor of Paul Hodson Advisory and a well-respected industry and ec- economic development uh, commentator. He's a CEO and board director with a special interest in innovation and change, but not this episode. What's happened? He's having a well and break. He swapped his podcast loafers for some hard wearing boot, hiking boots, and he's gone hiking in Cradle Mountain and the Overland Track in Tasmania. Well, so, good luck for some. Oh yeah, it'd be good this time of year too. He's um, he's doing it with his brothers, I think. So it'll be it'll be a, a good holiday. Good to see him get away because he's been working incredibly hard. Filling his very large podcast shoes, he's a good friend of the show, the knowledgeable and always engaging Michael Goodside. Hello, Michael. It's good to have you with us. Thank you for having
2: me. And uh, there's no way to fill Paul's shoes, so I'll just do my best this morning together with uh, with Tenet and yourself, James.
1: It's good to have you here. Hey, there's a lot going uh, on in the race to net zero. And one of the things that's been happening is that this conversation seems to have changed. Not so much a, a transition now as the race to net zero, as all of our businesses tried to hit those targets that have been set. As I said, in this podcast, we try to find some, some clarity in all of this. So let's do that. But the other good news is that we continue to receive a lot of good feedback on on our last episodes, and some questions and thoughts continue to come in, so I thought we might be able to address some of those today. First, though, Michael, we probably should get you to introduce yourself just quickly. Now, you're a professor at the University of Adelaide, but there is so much more to you than that. Tell us about yourself so we can get an idea of who you are. Hi, James. Thanks for having me today. I am the director of the Institute for
2: Sustainability, Energy, and Resources at the University of Adelaide, and I'm also the Research Director of the Copper for Tomorrow CRC bid and the bid sponsor for the Scaling Green Hydrogen CRC bid, both bids um,
1: running this year. And Paul Hodgson's involved in that as well, I believe.
2: Yes, he is. He's the interim bid CEO of the Scaling Green Hydrogen CRC bid, Um, but uh, i I hope that while he's out hiking, he's just able to focus on the amazing nature
1: of uh, Tasmania. I guess, right? Um, I hope you need some time off. Good on you, Paul. Well, this would be good to have you on the show because we've got a policy wonk,ing tenant, <laughs> a um, uh, an academic, and a researcher in uh, in Michael. And uh, I'll try and be Paul and be the business uh, the business person uh, in the conversation. Uh, there's been a lot happening. Welcome, and so good to have you and to get your insights. Um, we get a lot of questions about sustainability and about critical minerals and uh, uh, green hydrogen, so it'll be good to hear what you have to say. Uh, but first off, let's catch up as we always do. Tenet, I think you've been um, eyeballs deep in the recent federal budget and what, the, and what the takeaways are regarding energy and environment. Have you got any
0: any framing thoughts? Yeah, I think like there's always a lot going on in a federal budget, but... In this regard, I would highlight three things in that budget that I I think are a big deal for this context. So, two of them are election promises, and one of them is an unfortunate interaction with what people have taken as an election promise. The federal government has tipped $20 billion of finance and funding into accelerating the rollout of the green energy transition. Uh, through the rewiring the nation policy, uh, which is largely going to be a financial vehicle administered by the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And it's already announced some key early investments and projects to make the Mariners Link happen, uh, the uh, expanded connector between Victoria and Tasmania to unlock mainland access to pumped hydro projects also to be accelerated through this fund. Uh, the Victoria New South Wales Interconnector West transmission line, which will share energy between those two states and South Australia and unlock a lot of renewables development. And uh, finance for Victorian renewable energy zones, including offshore wind. So that was a big one, big dollars, uh, substantial impact. although. Those projects also are going to need to navigate the regulatory process and achieve sufficient social licence. People don't like big transmission lines generally near them. And uh, so it's not, you know, these financial hurdles are very important to have overcome. There's more needed to get those projects actually done. Uh, The second thing is uh, the National Reconstruction Fund is the second item, which is $15 billion of federal finance and funding for a whole range of aspects of economic development and industry development around the country, including $3 billion earmarked for uh, the decarbonisation of uh, heavy industry and um, critical sectors. But also there's, uh, there's billions in there for... Uh, accelerating the development of onshore mineral processing uh, and i think uh, this policy is going to be the vehicle through which the the government tries to achieve its industry development goals there's a lot of operational detail left to be finalized but it's expected to work very very similarly to the clean energy finance corporation and you know that's been a a a successful body a well-run body It's it's got a lot of respect if this new one can operate like that then uh, it's got decent prospects of, of making a good difference then the third thing, third thing the third thing is that the budget recognizes that energy prices are going to be really bad over the next few years they're going to be very high and uh that uh while it's not Caused by government policy, it's ultimately about the war in Ukraine and the impacts on global energy markets. Um, that is going to be a big deal for this government. Uh, people and businesses are going to be seeing substantial increases in their electricity and gas costs, and the government needs to work out what it can and will do about it. And they haven't worked that out yet, uh, but the, the the time is uh, is short. To get a strategy together,
1: yeah, I think that's going to be the uh, the ongoing talking point of the budget. The other things will fade into uh, into the background to a degree, but it's good for us as business people to keep all of it in mind. It's a, it's quite a broad ranging uh, budget that admits some there is some challenges ahead, which is which is nice to hear. Uh, Michael, I heard in the first two uh, a lot of renewable energy. Projects and in the second one, uh, uh, minerals processing on shore. Have you got any thoughts about how that's going? Are we ready for it? I guess as an academic, are we ready for those uh, type of improvements in the Australian transition? Well, look, I think that there's a lot of opportunity um, for Australia in this transition,
2: and I was just reflecting on a on a contributed commentary um, on uh, on a that I posted to. Um, uh, to my LinkedIn profile today for anybody interested, it's, um, it was posted on Kitco by Richard Rick Mills, and it says copper, the most important metal we're running short of. Australia has the world's second largest known copper reserve. And for a lot of the reasons that Tenet's been talking, talking about, um, there's the, the, the metals that are required for us to get to these modern energy systems. And, um, every new type of energy requires metals. The, the, uh, the power lines require metals. The question is where are we going to get these? Are we going to onshore the processing where right now, most of the processing is happening offshore. Um, and how are we going to add value with the resources that we already have rather than just sell the commodity further? Which has always been good business for Australia, but I think there's enormous opportunity to get there. And I think one of the things that, that I was hoping to see in the budget that I didn't see as much of, uh, talk about is actually where is the talent going to come from to make the most of all these opportunities? And something that I'm, I'm sure industry's also, uh, considering, um, given how low the unemployment rate is right now.
1: Yeah, it's a a major issue with um, with industry. Uh, The thought that occurs to me is those issues that you raise, which is should we value add our minerals before we export, has been around for a long time. Do these steps, do these these budget measures, take us towards resolving that issue, or is it still very much up in the air? I'd I'd ask both of you the same question.
0: I think that uh, having large uh, amounts of uh, affordable finance available can't hurt uh, but there are a lot of complications to to building up that um, that local capacity and capability um including the fact that uh, for for many minerals uh China has been a terrific place to do the processing um, these are um, often activities that at least as conventionally practiced can be Quite uh, environmentally uh, intensive, or, or, or have have serious local environmental impacts. Um, they are also they're just uh, often difficult things to do well. And China has been a place that is both willing to accept and manage the environmental impacts. And, and I uh, give them credit; they've they've been very good at just uh, doing the processing. Uh, they've been a, a great place to operate. So, in a world that is increasingly cautious about complete reliance on supply chain components that run through China, uh, there is an opportunity for others. But it, I don't know that it's going to be a, a completely straightforward opportunity to take up. Even though, like we are, we are so blessed with the underlying resources. I think we've got a chance, but success is far from guaranteed. But what what do you recommend? Look, I think
2: that partners who trade with one another are probably less likely to have the type of geopolitical issues we we're all observing. At least that's that's a hope. Um, I think that that in the new budget, with focus on decarbonization, that there are a couple of um, uh, of opportunities again. One is is that instead of trying to export hydrogen as an energy vector. You could use it to get to green steel or green aluminium or green cement, for example, and export that. And so um, you could use hydrogen to get to green copper, if you like. And right now, Australia, although we have the world's um, second largest known reserve, um, we're producing at maybe sixth or seventh uh, um, production level in the world depending on, on the little, the fluctuations there are in the market. And, and so the notion of us becoming the second largest producer in the world aligned with our reserve, I think is, is, um, a big ask exactly because we protect the environment and we protect, um, we're, we were cautious around social license and for all the right reasons we protect labor force and have, um, we have labor costs that, that maybe some other countries have cheaper labor costs. Um, so I think that us aligning our production level with our reserve levels, a big ask. But what if we became the world's largest green copper producer instead and exported green copper because we have the the renewable energy and these investments that the budget brings us um, to, to give us? the tools we need to actually get to a green, uh, metal. Um, and, and not only would we then have a green metal as a value added in itself, we'd have the, we'd have the know how as to how to get to these metals more efficiently, um, which is ultimately better for the environment as well. So I think that there's a lot of opportunities that this budget brings, but I think that, um, that, that, uh, there are some other signals that, the market needs to see um, before before transitioning from the CapEx they've already spent to uh, new and more modern systems or, or energy systems to power these, these, uh, these, these, um, these processes around Australia. And a great first step in the right direction.
1: That's not going to be easy when businesses are under pressure to uh, to achieve margin with increased energy prices so the transition is a complex a complex journey there's there's no doubt about that one of the things that not many people realize about uh, critical minerals and Tenet, you you raised this once before on a previous podcast is that critical minerals are the minerals that uh, a country needs to ensure it can continue, the minerals that it needs to keep its economy going, which means that critical minerals can vary across across nations. What we consider to be critical may not necessarily be critical in another nation, which does bring in the geopolitics. Um, you can, we, we've already seen where Japan and, and China have had disputes in the past over, over political issues, but they've used critical minerals. You're heading off to COP shortly to the uh, to the annual UN climate change conference. Are we likely to see geopolitics make it difficult for the climate discussions to progress? And then we'll come back to critical minerals as to
0: how that impacts it as well. Yeah, so uh, geopolitics will be a very difficult thing at uh, and in in the background to this this conference. Uh, and there's several dimensions to that. One is the confrontation between Russia and the West over the fate of Ukraine, and like the- is that essentially
1: an energy question or not uh so you-
0: the the energy side of it uh the energy impacts uh will will be a big deal, but also the u n process uh, at these conferences requires that outcomes be adopted by consensus, and so any time there is A major dispute between large parties, uh, particularly large parties, but not even small ones actually can block consensus potentially. Uh, It makes life difficult. And uh, at uh, the conference in Katowice, Poland in 2018, uh, the adoption of the outcome was held up for several hours uh, because uh, one party, Turkey, was was trying to get a change to uh, its status under the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, about uh, 10 years ago, there was an infamous instance where the uh, the Russian delegation was objecting to the adoption of the, the final outcome and the, the conference uh, chair, the president of the COP, just pretended not to see them. Objecting, just studiously looked in the other direction and gaveled the outcome through. That's a that's a diplomatic uh, rarity, and uh, I think there'll need to be some fancy footwork to ensure some alignment between the Russians and, and the Ukrainians. Like th- they will both have to agree to the outcome. Also, we've got tensions at a at a higher level than in. Any recent uh, years between the United States and China. A joint statement between the US and China uh, at uh, COP26 in Glasgow was an important part of uh, getting a a more positive atmosphere at that conference and a sense that things were going to to move. And I don't know that we're going to see comparable positivity this time. Uh, Regular climate policy meetings between Those nations were suspended earlier this year over the uh, Taiwan visit uh, by the uh, Speaker of the US House of Representatives. Uh, So that stuff is difficult. And then, of course, we've got the stuff that is uh, more specific to climate change. And so the the, um, dissatisfaction by developing and emerging economies with the failure of developed economies to fully meet The commitments to climate finance that they have made several times uh, over the years. Uh, Developed countries have provided a significant uh, wedge of finance and investment, primarily for mitigation or reduction of emissions, but also some for adaptation. Uh, But they haven't fully lived up to what they said they would do. And there's a bunch of debates uh, where this will come to the fore. At Sharm el Sheikh. Uh, And then finally, you've got disagreements between uh, developing and emerging economies over ambition, how ambitious to be in uh, fighting climate change. You had arguments at the G20 meeting a a couple of months ago from China and India that the 1.5 degree goal is impractical and we should focus more on the goal of keeping climate change below two degrees. That's not a view that small island developing states, which will be the first to go under in a warming world, uh, that they will share. So uh, this this COP is shaping up to be very complex, very messy. It's a working COP, not a milestone COP. Uh, it's meant to move the ball forward, not to uh, kick a definitive goal. Um, but I think it's going to be pretty scratchy.
2: You know, I think that the challenge... That set is a worthy challenge, but I think that again, just getting back to um, what I what I understand about copper, and these aren't numbers coming from the mining sector; these are numbers coming from the International Energy Agency, looking at current mix and reserves of of uh, different critical minerals around the world. But to meet the net zero goals, um, different reports, and I think they're credible, have have reported that. To get to all the new green and renewable energy systems we want to get to for us to meet the net zero goals and the targets associated with that you talked about tenant we will need to mine more copper between now and 2050 when those goals happen than we've mined in the history of humankind that's a large amount of copper and we'll also need to process that copper and get it to market and value add it and we have to do it in a manner where we're not actually hurting the environment more, um, but adopting newer practices to, um, protect our environment as we, as we get there. And that's just copper. We haven't even started talking about the other metals required for, uh, batteries and, and, um, and, uh, uh the, the whole suite of critical minerals. Um, it's a challenge for every single one of them. And, uh, it's an, It's especially a challenge where most mines and most places where you protect the environment when you're, when you're uh, exploring and developing a mine, there's a lot of diligence around, um, how to do it best so that you're impacting the environment the least. And that takes on global average, then from discovery of a metal to, um, active mining, if you like about 15 or 16 years so how will even discovering a, a major mind today help us get to those goals that
1: we need tomorrow um and it, do you know the answers are, are we getting any closer to getting answers or are we still just framing the challenge well i think i think the
2: the the danger is this type of of um talk around sovereign capability which really means We do more and other countries do less. And I think that a diverse market is good. But if you look at copper processing, um, China is nearly processing about half the amount of copper in the whole world. So, you know, in my mind, we have to ask ourselves, um, how do we get to the end state for the benefit of everybody um, without generating more issues than we're trying to solve? And um what is it we should develop in this country in Australia? Where are the lead market advantages? And where can we enjoy a competitive advantage for the sake of business? Because with with successful businesses, we'll become a successful society. They're kind of the cornerstone of 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 our prosperity. So we have to this- we have to move carefully, and I think we have to get to an us rather than an us or them. And, and for all of its faults, it's one of the reasons I enjoy following the COP, exactly because of this consensus, irrespective of, of, of um, how difficult it is. Mm. Um, I, I guess if we're, if we're put in a room where we all have to agree what type of lunch we're going to order, you want to make sure you get a lunch that's nutritious and healthy and everybody's excited about instead of a lunch that's easy to agree on. Um, like a, a pizza margarita. And um, <laughs> not, not that there's anything right. wrong about a pizza margarita. Everybody will get full and uh, leave with a full belly. Um, but it certainly wouldn't be as exciting a result if everybody was willing to actually have real dialogue and arrive at a,
0: at a more exciting um, end state. At the end of the day, you do need to agree on eating something And not the the debate has a limit, and the limit is the ability of people to withstand uh, the uh, the costs to them personally of not achieving an outcome. And uh, I think the timelines are working against us. On the uh, extending that metaphor to climate, um, the 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 consequences come uh, a long time after the decision. uh, But similarly, we've. We've got to keep people focused on the need for an outcome. Paul Hodgson uh, is always
1: saying on this podcast that uh, it's much easier to lose 10 kilos of weight over 20 months than it is to lose them over four months. Uh, and as we get closer and closer to those timelines, the pain and the difficulty is going to get harder. There's no doubt about that. Is that a uh, new Clean Energy Corporation funding that you're talking about? tenant going to help us resolve any of those issues that Michael talked about. It sounds like there's some business opportunities there. There's some government policy issues there. We need to figure out what we're going to do with our critical minerals.
0: So the um, the money for both the the industry development fund and for the rewiring the nation fund, like both of those things, can be relevant. But I think that the the point that Michael was making is incredibly important about. Um, adding to global capacity for the, the stuff that we all are going to need a lot more of um, to get this transition done, that is so important. And so in thinking about the rollout of all these transmission lines and associated infrastructure through the rewiring the nation, in thinking about all of the proposals that may come forward seeking finance from the National Reconstruction Fund, There's broadly two paths that we might go down. One is about import substitution and trying to make everything here, and could see us wind up with a bunch of subscale little artisanal makers of uh, stuff that we could actually just as easily get from somewhere else. And the other is about moving the global needle on the supply of, of the the raw minerals, the processed minerals, the equipment and uh, componentry to build a clean economy. And I think we do have opportunities to move that needle, but we will need to do it at scale and with a, a global orientation. In some bits of the clean economy, what goes on within Australia will be globally significant, I think, in um, in energy generation for energy-intensive exports, whether what we're exporting is hydrogen molecules or ammonia molecules or electrons or clean metals and and other energy-intensive products, uh, we will potentially be very big. Whereas in making cars, well, in in consuming cars, we are always going to be a tiny part of of the global market. So I think we do need to prioritise and think about the adequacy of global supply chains and where we can help that, help forge more secure and diverse global supply chains, and not go down a rabbit hole of trying to trying to be Fortress Australia. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm of the view, as, as I think you probably know, that we're an island. We can't
1: be Fortress Australia. We have to trade. Islands have always traded, and today is no, no different. Michael, did you have a, a thought? Well, look, I think we have all
2: the all the um, uh, resources that we need and all the political goodwill. I think that, um, that uh, there has to be a lot of careful thought because at the end of the day, we are far away from a lot of markets. Hmm. I think there also has to be a lot of thoughts about how do we ensure there's also a pipeline of talent to ensure uh, leadership in these emerging areas. Because I think we just take that for granted. And we are in a global market um, for talent, as as all the listeners of this know. And universities are doing their best to supply this talent. But we can't attract uh, uh, students to certain sectors. Industry has to be the attractor and the universities will be the educator. And I think that there are some, some sectors that are really challenged in attracting um, uh, new talent, uh, the mining sector for one, um, especially for the amount of mining that's going to be needed globally and processing uh, to ensure that that we have the, the critical metals needed to um, and the critical minerals um to, to get to uh uh these green energy systems. Um to put it in perspective in Australia, uh there's ten universities that educate mining engineers in a country where mining is absolutely essential to creating the budget that was uh or the funding for the budget that just was was put forward. Um and last year there was um, somewhere around 100 graduates across the entire country um, into mining engineering, and uh, that's probably for a demand of over 600 positions uh, for mining engineers at various career levels um, in this country. Um, and and it's a global problem. Every single country uh, is dealing with um, with 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 talent choosing sectors that they perceive um, are, are uh, more exciting or somewhere they can make a difference. Um, and so, so I think industry has to help people understand why their kids should go into their sector and encourage them to do so. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a challenge we just don't talk about a lot. Um, universities can't fix that.
1: And it's not, we should be going out and trying to convince. We've well, raised some good questions. Uh, we'll have a break now. And after the break, we had a question from a, uh, a listener who asked us about the US Inflation Reduction Act.
0: If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's B-I-G at aigroup.com.au.
1: Okay, so let's move on. Here's an interesting opportunity, possibly. We had a question from a, uh, a listener who asked us about the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, for those who don't know, the Biden administration passed a, a multifaceted act. And part of that says that uh, the U.S. manufacturing uh, industry will receive tax credits or encouragement to use 80% internal, internally uh, sourced resources in their electric vehicles. Uh, uh It go start off at 40%, increase to 80%. Uh, but that is almost impossible to achieve. So there was a caveat in it that said if it couldn't be achieved within America, it could be achieved from company countries where they have a FTA, um, a, um, a free trade agreement. Now, interesting, the United States do not have a free trade agreement with many countries. They have it with the U.S. Uh, they have it with Canada, with Mexico, and they have it with Australia. They don't have it with Britain, the EU, New Zealand, or with Japan, so, or China, obviously. Or China. So there is real opportunities, possibly, for Australia to help the US build their new industries, particularly the electric vehicle industries. Would you see that as an opportunity for us, or... Are uh, we still just going to send the critical minerals over there uh, and they'll use it in their manufacturing?
0: So the, the US IRA, uh, it is it is weird to be uh talking about this as the IRA, but it's this bit of legislation is a very big deal. Uh it involves hundreds of billions of US dollars of tax credits for various forms of clean energy and low and zero emissions. Technology over the coming decade, and the electric vehicle subsidies, as you say, are contingent on uh, levels, the, the, the derivation of the content uh, of the batteries and the, so really the, the, the lithium involved and the rare earths involved, uh, and that does create opportunities potentially for Australia. It possibly creates two kinds of opportunity, actually. So one is to uh, be a part of the activity unleashed by the IRA and to be a supplier, either of the the raw materials or of processed materials. The other is, and this is not really what the the framers of that legislation had in mind, uh, that China, which is a very significant supplier of a lot of uh, what we're talking about, um, the processed materials, the componentry and equipment, finished vehicles, uh, will find it very uh, much harder to compete in the US market for some of those products, and there will be some, some cheap Chinese supply looking around global markets for some place to sell and like Australia has a bit of a fork in the road choice on do we um seek uh, a a lower cost but but maybe insecure um solution to some of our um transition issues as a buyer of stuff um or or do we Resist that temptation. This is playing out in a very real way in the hydrogen sector, where there are some um, hydrogen electrolysis um, entrants who, like their plan, is to be cost competitive faster by getting the cheapest electrolyzers they can, which they believe will come from China. And there's others that are trying to make their value proposition. They're going to make the electrolyzers here. Uh and who's who's gonna come out on top, I think is not gonna be a matter of compare, you know, one cost number to another cost number. It's gonna have judgments, private and public judgments, about supply chain resilience, about national security, about uh vulnerability to geopolitics. And I I don't envy the people making those decisions. Those are those are some tricky oh. ones. <laughs> But Michael, what do you reckon?
2: No, I think that you're onto something. Um, exactly these unintended consequences of, of um, these these deals. Firstly, I think it's a huge opportunity exactly because of the FTA. Um, and I think that there are unexplored areas of the value chain where Australia could make a real difference. For example, in the circular economy of mm. these systems, um, Australia has the expertise and capability to actually do um, recycling of some of these components, um, and get to uh, a place where we can efficiently recycle batteries and the materials in them or, um, uh, or use them for some sort of positive ser- uh, purpose. We also have tons of experience in even running major, uh, uh, battery parks. So all along the value chain and further up the value chain, um, I think that there are huge opportunities with Australia. That there's easy wins and first-mover capabilities across the U.S. to Australia, where this type of um, announcement in the USA will enable investment um, between the two countries. And I think that, as, as, um, as you pointed out, Tenet, that, that it's not going to be a simple decision to say, okay, well, um, is there a short game, a long game, and, and what's really best for industry um, here in the long term um and and I'm super excited to follow where industry itself feels um those those major wins are and and I don't have a a crystal ball that's such a dynamic situation and so many factors as you pointed out um, that it's to me I think that um, it's it's going to be uh hard to get it wrong, but it's going to be challenging to do it.
0: Really well. There's one extra thing to to note about the US IRA, which is that this was a party line piece of legislation uh, that was passed the US Congress and was signed into law by the Democratic Party. Uh, Democratic Party is at the time we record, we, we're we're before the US midterms, but party of the president usually goes backwards at midterms, uh, particularly when the economic situation is not great. Chances are that one or both houses of uh, Congress will change hands uh, at that election, Um, but that probably does not mean that uh, in the near term anything is going to change around this uh, major set of legislation. Uh, It's not going to be reversed. Uh, I I think it's going to remain a big deal. And really, almost regardless of what happens at the next round of elections uh, in 2024, I think the the thrust of of U.S. policy in this regard is probably going to be pretty similar. Uh, strong push into industrial policy, uh, opportunities for friendly supply chain partners, and uh, a, a tricky outlook for those who are at loggerheads with uh, the U.S. in the global and, politics. And James or
2: tenants, uh, you know, nobody can predict the outcome of political elections, but this dynamic system and opportunity for businesses across the supply chain, that won't go away irrespective of the outcome. So, so, so what can Australian businesses do to, to leverage this? Is there any low hanging fruit?
1: Indeed. The, um, The the opportunities for businesses just keep popping up, don't they? I mean, this is clear that there are some opportunities here and uh, I think we've framed them really well uh, in this conversation. Uh, One last issue before we go, um, picking up what Michael was saying. Leanne Kemp, the founder and CEO of a company called Everledger, has uh, done a deal to develop with Ford a battery passport. Uh Everledger is a company that is a blockchain company based in Australia. They came up with the idea of monitoring diamonds so that they could eliminate blood diamonds. Uh, and they've done that to a large degree. Now they're saying, let's do this for batteries to make sure that there's provenance on what's in the battery. We know where it came from and we know where it's going. And it's a whole-of-life type of passport. So we can pick up the circular economy. We can pick up uh, the accuracy of, of whether or not we're we're really using the right minerals or we, we're using minerals from the countries we don't want to. And we can see how long the batteries last. We can see the efficiency of them. This is bringing the digital world, blockchain, into the decarbonization world. Is this the future? Is this what we're going to see more and more of—the digitalization of sustainability?
0: I think that there there are multiple drivers of um, businesses and governments being able to provide and verify better information about their supply chains in in all kinds of ways, but particularly around embodied emissions and chain of uh, chain of custody uh, and. Uh, the um, the conditions under which things were made, uh, the um, hydrogen guarantee of origin um, system that Australia is trying to develop and, and comparable systems that are being developed elsewhere, uh, the European Union's carbon border adjustment mechanism, the push uh, by uh, many investors for greater uh, targets and information about scope three emissions uh, by um, businesses that they invest in, you know, there's a lot of drivers that are calling for similar levels of data. Now, as for how that's provided, I don't know, I've become a bit gun-shy about blockchain stuff in recent years. I'm not sure that that blockchain is always adding a lot versus uh, having a, um, a trusted uh, keeper of a global database. Um, there are there are some zero trust contexts where uh, where blockchain is quite important. There's others where I don't know, maybe maybe a bit over engineered for. Uh, maybe this
1: is more of a digital security process rather than necessarily blockchain. I, I use blockchain because that's what Leanne Kemp yeah. picked, uh, made her money out of. Um what about you, Michael? Are you seeing digitalization of sustainability come in? Uh,
2: Look, I think it's super exciting. And the example you gave, um, I hadn't heard about, James. And um, what an exciting initiative. Uh, just as a normal, everyday consumer, um, my, my, um, uh, my enthusiasm for uh, digital sustainability or digital any, anything has been tempered right now by these um, cyber attacks that we're witnessing. And I don't know if the two are linked at all, but just as somebody normal, not professor anything, but just Mike out in the digital world, when I hear about major, major companies losing all their data for all their customers, um, that worries me. And if, if we're moving towards digital, great, but figure out a way to keep us, the, the people that are the consumers, um, who have to interact with these systems safe and, and our data safe. And I hope that in whatever initiatives we we do, that, that the security um, stays up with the technology. Yeah,
1: it's, it's interesting that blockchain hasn't taken off as well as it would have expected 10 years ago. It's still struggling. But I think the idea of secure, secure digital processes will continue to be addressed. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. I've said before that I understand there's about 43 grams of critical minerals or rare earth minerals in uh, an iPhone, which is not very much until you remember that there's been 2 billion my, uh, iPhones manufactured in the iPhone life. Uh, so that's 83 billion, ton, uh, uh, you know, 8 billion tonnes or something or of critical minerals. So it would be good to know where they all are so we can go and get them and uh, and use them again. I think they're mostly in the, the drawers of, of uh, my cupboards. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Uh, uh, Michael, thank you for joining us. It's been good to have you on the program, on the show. Uh, Tenet, travel safe to Egypt. Hello, Paul, who's
0: wandering the wilds of Tasmania. Uh, any final comments before we go? Uh, I think that uh, it's been an eventful few weeks in energy and climate, and uh, I can't imagine things getting quieter anytime soon. We're going to have a lot <laughs> to talk about and Christmas is almost here. <laughs>
2: I'll, I'll just look forward to listening to the next podcast or whenever um, Tenet's going to tell us about all the exciting initiatives um, uh, back together with Paul and yourself, James, when he gets back from the COP. So thanks for having me today. It was a real pleasure to get to
1: participate. Oh, it's great to have your input. And, yes, next episode is all about Tenet's uh, reportable actions at uh, at COP. We won't find out about his...
0: his um, Seeking through Cairo bazaars, I'll, I'll have a good set of Christmas presents at the end of uh, <laughs> of the Cairo leg.
1: You know what I say? Small and expensive. That's all I ask for. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. See you guys. Thank you. See you soon.